0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So a study was performed on the security of different lock screen mechanisms on Androids and they took a look at how hard it was to try and shoulder surf people's pins or lock screen patterns. You found something interesting about uh, Android unlock screens. Like usually we, we talk to people about securing their own personal devices. The very first thing we told them to do is to put a lock code on the on the screen, right? You know, so that people can't get into it. But it seems like not everyone is is following best practices and that's the research you found
1: yeah I mean that's pretty much what the what this story is is really going over so and we've done stories on things like this before about you know securing your cell phone and putting you know either a pin or a passcode on it. but we know that people are just not good at creating either good pins swipe patterns on their phones. They're not even good at you know creating good like security questions and answers sure. So there's basically a study that came out by a research team at both the U.S. Naval Academy and the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, to try to prove out whether or not using a swipe pattern or a pin was easier for an attacker to, by shoulder surfing, get from you, right? What the research shows, and I think it's probably pretty obvious, is that when they were shown pictures of, of people putting in patterns, it was much easier for somebody who was technically shoulder surfing mm-hmm. to be able to recreate the pattern right. as opposed to putting a pin in.
0: Right. And the other thing about the patterns is that once you've used one of those dots, you can't reuse it in that pattern. I think it doesn't let you. Like, it's you're drawing. That's okay. a good question. I, I thought you could. OK.
1: But. That's, I, I don't know. I don't have an Android phone. do you
2: phone, know, but... Mike? Do you use an
0: Android phone? Do
2: you remember? Uh, that? I don't. Um, but one of the, the key indicators uh, they had was um, feedback trails. Um, so as one of the features inside of the Android device, uh, you can turn on a little feedback trail, so it leaves a little stream of light behind your finger so you know where you've been. And the ability to, you know, reverse engineer, if you will, that pattern was considerably higher for Instances where the video had the feedback trails turned on.
0: Sure, that makes sense. Right, that was one
1: of the things that they also tested as well, where you're, I, I guess, you're able to turn off the the actual visual nodes on your oh, phone. So you can
0: move around it, but it doesn't show the line of where you're.
1: Being. Exactly, okay. exactly. So the results, again, maybe you know, maybe you probably predicted this, but 10% of the people that were studied looking at somebody putting in a 6 digit pin uh-huh. were able to get it right. Wow. That percentage went up to 25% when they were able to see the video a second time. Now switch over to using a pattern. So when they were used now they were seeing videos of somebody putting inputting a pattern, what they saw was 64% were able to recreate the pattern on the first try, the first look. And then it jumps up to 80% when they were able to see the video a second time.
0: So I guess the message is really, I mean, if you're worried about shoulder surfing, then a pin is much stronger than a, than a pattern. Correct. So it may seem obvious to most people who are looking at the study that, yeah, if you're swiping a pattern in like this, or as opposed to putting in a pin, it, it seems like the pin would be the more secure method for several reasons.
1: There is an actual a paper here. It's like a 15-page paper if you want to go into the you know the nitty-gritty details here. But it's clear that the human Brain is able to discern patterns more than they are able to capture. You know, movement of just a you know, like I said, you when your finger is just tapping a pin on the on the on uh, what, the phone.
0: Uh, I kind of wonder at what distance they were at because I, me- I know that if I knew the number sequence, I feel like I would know that I'd be able to memorize that fairly easily. If I had to just remember as points on a grid, maybe it'd be a little bit harder. Right.
1: And yeah. you know, I you know, again, I the, you know, I don't know who the pool of Participants were, you know, were they people who, you know, have any kind of security knowledge? Clearly, if you were there, you would be, (laughs) I know you'd be studying that screen very intently, right? And you'd probably be one of the 10%. But I think, you know, in general, I think that's what they were showing is just, hey, look, if you're just sitting, you know, at a cafe somewhere with your phone out and you did this, would somebody just sitting, you know, directly behind you or to the side of you be able to discern what your pattern or pin was?
0: So one of the things that I keep coming back to with that pattern is that, I remember, we ought to cover it on the show maybe years ago, but someone realized that, hey, if you're going to take your finger and you're going to wiggle it all over your screen, you're going to leave a fing- a bit of a film of um, skin oil. Right. So if someone gets a hold of that phone and takes a look at it and you haven't really used it since you've logged in, that smear is going to show the path. And you've got, I mean, you, if you can do it in one direction or the other, you know, that's two tries. Two tries right, yeah, yeah, you pretty much got it at that point, yep. so... Ever since I heard about that, I moved on to using a pin because, I mean, I'm going to be poking at my screen all day long. The chances of me giving away my pin through the the points I've touched on my screen is a little, I think it's a lot less. Right,
2: yeah. It just goes to show that, um, you know, you have that trade-off between security and convenience, right? With any kind of uh, new authentication mechanism or or approach, um, you know, those need to be looked at over time to see what new... Uh, exposures or, or shortcomings that particular uh, kind of uh, approach might have. It'll be interesting to see how we, as we've you know been doing a lot of fingerprint authentication for a few different versions of the iPhone now for some time and now we're seeing the newer versions come out with image based um, you know authentication. It'll be interesting to see you know what shortcomings those methods um, eventually reveal also, if any.
1: The big discovery there in this story was the percentages clearly show that using an unlocked pattern was less secure. It was more memorable for p- anybody who was watching you input that pattern into your phone. So, Mike, looks like you uh, <clears throat> were looking at a story this week uh, talking about Companies and how they underestimate the cost of going through, you know, some sort of breach.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, as we continue to see, you know, large scale breaches make the headlines. Um, you know, it, it's inspired some research um, about what that really entails, what that really means to a company, and kind of what the perceptions are uh, from a recovery perspective. And there was a, a group of researchers in the UK um, that went through and. Uh, Sampled several hundred uh, enterprise organizations to see really what their perception was around uh, the recovery time uh, and cost of having a significant data breach. And what they found was that the majority of enterprises are really not fully accounting uh, for the impact of a major breach. They found that half the firms that they talked to believed that they would be fully operational within 48 hours of a breach. And that only 2% believed that the effects of a breach would last longer than 10 days. Wow. That, that was really, really shocking to me uh, when I saw that data point. I mean, if, if anything, um, you know, we, we've seen these things play out through the media, you know, for months and months.
0: Even minor breaches, the, the aftershocks of it can be felt for weeks and months. But some of the numbers were, were coming around like eh, 48 hours. We should be fine. We should be done and, and through this which to me is shocking.
1: You're not going to be able to bounce back from one of these major breaches in the 48 hours, or even in you know seven days or a couple of weeks. That just doesn't happen.
2: Then they got into some of the other um, things that organizations were or were not accounting for uh, with regard to total recovery cost of having a breach. And they found that only uh, less than a quarter of firms uh, were actually including public relations and communications groups as part of their incident response plans or incident response drills. And as we've seen, communication with customers and the media and the public uh, can be critical to a successful breach response.
1: Getting the information out to the public as quickly as you possibly can, in a a safe manner, right, is the best way to respond to one of these breaches. The, The public responds the best when the information is brought to them as quickly as
2: possible. Only half the firms that were, were polled, uh, considered lost customers as part of the potential breach cost, and only a third of them actually factored in the cost of the investigation itself. So these were some very, very interesting uh, data points, uh, especially since we've been seeing these things play out really since 2014, that you would think that the numbers would be better than this. And sadly, if these are the improved numbers, I cringe at thinking of what they were prior to you know, the last few years, right? Hmm. Clearly, this is not a UK-centric problem, right? Yeah. Sure. I
0: okay. wonder how many, because we're saying this number of companies had this, hadn't learned certain lessons. Let's put it that way. Right. And I wonder how many of them actually haven't had a major public-facing breach, or at least you know, haven't admitted to having that same kind of a breach. I I tend to think that once you've faced one of these, you you do tend to plan in advance because you realize exactly how painful it is to go through, you know, in the midst of everything, trying to coordinate like PR and incident response and messaging within the company. There's all sorts of things that you learn quickly you have to do.
1: Companies that have not been through it, I would hope that at least you try to learn from the other companies that have been through it because a lot of information, right, has come out about these other companies that have gone through it. So maybe not the... Minute details, right? I mean, some of that stuff is kept very under wraps. But a lot of the major pieces, like, hey, what what went wrong? What should have been in place, right? You know, you you missed talking with your PR, and they didn't uh, announce the you know the breach in time, which always causes a problem. So all those those things are lessons that could be learned mm-hmm. without you having to go through
0: it yourself. Sure. So which is the best way to learn a lesson, right? <laughs>
2: especially a painful one, yeah. from somebody else. Yeah, and it's really, um, you know, with, with data that's come out um, under a recent Poneman Group study uh, showing that the average cost uh, of a breach per record is approaching about $225 per record, per record. Uh,
0: wow. now.
2: We, you know, that, that does give a benchmark, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are lumped into that, right? So when you start talking to organizations about really what does that $225 per record entail, you know, there could be a lot of these things wrapped up into that if they're using that as their benchmark. But at the individual organization level, uh, you know, it's a good idea to regularly review your response plans, make sure that you are including all of the organizations inside of your uh, company that would be involved, legal, PR, your executives, and not just your technical people. And that when large breaches make the news that you are using them as sort of a you know, unfortunate case study uh, that you're then able to go back and say, do we need to tweak anything?
1: There's a lot of information that has come out about these breaches and what went wrong. what What was the initial vector that allowed the attacker to get in? Learn from those things and then try to build your security around protections around those types of things, right? So being prepared for these things is much better than trying to
2: prepare after the fact. So Matt, um, tell me about the cryptocurrency um, research that you were studying.
0: So this is an interesting one. ESET put out a pretty neat write-up of some uh, Monero mining software that they had found. You now Monero is an alternate cryptocurrency. It has some key differences from Bitcoin in that it's harder to track transactions and it's easier to mine. So with Bitcoin, the ledger is open to everybody and you can see, you know, this address sent this much money to this address at this time and everyone agrees to it because that's, that's basically how the blockchain works. Within Monero, they, they make it harder to track that. The paper trail of you know where that money actually came from is a lot harder for anyone to investigate. The second thing is that it's using a different hashing algorithm called CryptoKnight, which is actually more favorable to CPUs and GPUs, which commodity boxes tend to have as opposed to like the specialized mining hardware that the hardcore Bitcoin guys will go out and buy. So it means that if you can get on somebody else's generic box, you could probably use it to mine Monero effectively. So that's why it's attractive. Yeah. In this case, there was a bug that came out earlier this year in Web Dev, which is part of IIS, and turns out that you could use this to put malware onto a machine that was exposed to the internet and running a vulnerable version of WebDAV. So specifically you spend a prop find message to it that WebDAV supports and there's like a, an overflow within that that allows you to, you know, install your own stuff. So they're pushing a modified version of one of the open source Monero miner tools called XMRig. So basically they're taking the legit mining one that you would install if you were interested in mining Monero on your own. They made some small modifications to pre-package a bunch of flags in the like, command line, configuration stuff, and the pool they want to send the mining information to, and they package the whole thing and send it over. And it just starts mining on that box. It's pretty interesting. They say that this campaign over the last couple of months has mined in American dollars about 63,000 American dollars. And that's with fluctuations in how much Monero has been worth. It's been up to like 150 US, down to like 100 recently. But it's, it's pretty neat to see that this, this is going on. Apparently they didn't remember to put any, uh, any persistence into the malware because they, did, they just repackage an existing thing, So, but it doesn't persist. So like over time as servers get rebooted or, or something happens to that process, it's just been dwindling. Uh, but they, they've said they've been watching it for a couple of months, and um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting write-up overall. I mean, I think Monero is one we've seen for a while. There was that one malware that we saw a while back that was like going on other machines as photo.scr do you remember that one Mm -hmm. yeah people were pushing it over ftp to servers and running it there you know so Mm -hmm. Monero has been around from a cybercrime perspective for at least a couple of years but i think now we're seeing more interest in it because of the huge uptick in the the value of, of these cryptocurrencies. Right. So it's something neat to track. It's it's this whole opportunistic, how can I get other people's machines to perform the heavy, expensive calculations for me? Right. And I think we're going to continue to see more creative ways of, of finding other people's processors to use for this kind of thing. Right.
2: Yeah, the, the trend is shifting toward the other cryptocurrencies. So Monero has been very popular, as you said. Uh, there are others. Uh, there are a lot of, there's a surprising number of cryptocurrencies, actually, that have really jumped in valuation. But, you know, we've really seen the whole Bitcoin uh, thing kind of tail off just because that uh, it's so much harder to generate an actual profit. The profit margins are better with these other cryptocurrencies because they haven't been mined so heavily. Yep. So that's, you know, also contributing to that.
0: I mean, it seems like it's a relatively low effort group because of all the modifications to the this are fairly minor. I mean, all they're doing is basically finding a way to package in those those uh, configuration things that they know far in advance so that all it does is it runs, it connects directly to the pool that they want it to. I've, I've been kind of interested in Monero and, and tracking it because of this and newer interest in, in cryptocurrency among criminals. And it does seem a little bit harder to do, but the, the mining pools actually I hadn't thought about. Using those as a way of tracking it, because the pools report and say, "Okay, this is how much we've been, you know, generating right, over yeah. time." But I think an individual address, uh, I think, is harder to look at. But it's it's something that's definitely caught my interest, and I'll see if I can't do a little more research on it, on um, the next few weeks. Okay.
1: So uh, uh, clearly, a way to try to protect at least against this particular uh, vector of getting it installed is to make sure that your web dev is, is patched. Patched. Which
0: and there is a patch out for it. In fact. Microsoft released this patch sort of not out of band, but for versions of, of the Windows servers that they've offered, that they have stopped officially supporting uh, okay. because it was a critical bug, which is okay. a good thing to, yeah. to know. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you are running any version of, of uh, Microsoft Windows Server, it, it behooves you to go out and look for a patch even if you don't expect to see one. First and foremost,
1: always be patching your servers. So in this particular case, we've seen that it was it was a vulnerability that came out a while ago. If your server's not patched against that, you're vulnerable to this.
0: So we got the internet weather for this week. Most probe ports is the top 10. Again, 23 and 22 are at the top. 1433 is in third place. Apparently they were switched in position last week. 80 TCP is still at number four. Let's take a look at the uh, number of sources probing. Uh, 23 TCP is actually still in the, still in the top um, and might actually be a little larger than I'm used to. Um, in the lion's share of the sources probing. 4 to 45 is in second. Unsurprisingly, this is WannaCry, probably. It's a worm, and there's plenty of other folks who are interested in this vulnerability, um, the Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance family. So I don't I would expect that to be there for a while. Uh, and third is 8 uh, is eight zero ICMP. I actually put a little guide this weekend because I can never remember which one is which. Type 8 code 0, I think it is, is echo request, which is like a ping request. 00 ICMP is an eighth, no change from last week, and that's echo reply. So in the top 10, we've got both ping outbound and then ping responses, which is kind of interesting. And then 11-0 ICMP is time exceeded. TTL expired in transit. And you get a lot of this when you're doing traceroute. Because you've got a lot of, you know, you keep incrementing that TTL and, you know, things come back as a response to that. So it may suggest that some people out there are doing some massive network recon just to see what hosts are responding to ping. Uh, For what reason, I really couldn't say. In the last month or so, there's been an uptick in scanning here on port 23 uh, in a range of about 30,000 scan sources per hour. So it might mean that there's a new botnet in town looking to scan for this as well. Or maybe a new population of scanners, same botnet. 1433 is MS SQL, and that's been slowly trending upwards for a while now actually. Ever since it started to break into the top 10, it's really sort of been creeping up. Uh, And That's the number of scan flows here. You can see it comes out around 280, Mm. maybe peaks out around 290,000 scan flows per hour. Scan sources on 5358, this is that WSD API we've reported over and over, probably related to Hajime. And that really peaked somewhere in the middle to the end of August and slowly it's been creeping off. The last time I was watching, show, was the last time I was on the show it was around here, and now it's even turned off further. We're, we're coming down to about 2,000 scan sources per hour. So it's really not a, a port of interest anymore, although there's some population out there that is scanning for it. Port 445, I took a 365 day view just to show again that this thing continues its march upward. It, in the 30 day view, it really doesn't show how much this is changing, but you can see a clear trend heading up that way. So. Yeah. I mean this is a bug that's been out since like mi- middle of the year right and I guess that just there's so many windows bu- boxes out there that have not been patched uh, for eternal blue and its cousins and, and, uh, and we
1: keep showing this I think same chart week after week and this does not show any sign of changing directions yeah. or even leveling off for that mm-hmm. matter it, every week it seems like the graph just needs a change to sure. To fit the the new the new traffic that we're seeing, but it is it is amazing that it's still climbing.
0: It, it kind of bothers me that this port is still out there, especially after the years and years of config or scanning that we were reporting on the show. You know, right? How many years ago? Seven years ago. Yeah, but yeah, people are still putting this on the internet. Uh, this is an interesting one that was that hit as a, sort of a an anomaly. It's not in the top ten. I don't think it's even in the top twenty, uh, but it showed up in ours as a sort of a anomaly. Okay. And this is port one seven four seven two which among other things uh, is the control port for Tanium. Tanium is is for orchestration of security response. It's definitely something that runs with a lot of privileges on your machine because it has to do things similar to what an antivirus might do, except instead of scanning for stuff, it has the rights to do anything an admin might do on the machine to recover from a security situation. Remove software, uh, uninstall services, change files, delete things. Usually you'd see it on the inside of a corporate network. And I, maybe somebody is looking for boxes that is running this, the client for this and trying to speak to them because, you know, this is a powerful tool. If yeah. it really is what they're looking for, then if you're able to compromise a box running Tanium, you've got kind of admin, almost admin rights on the box. Right. Am I right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the the, the the product does have the the ability to manage the asset when it's off network. Interesting. So... Huh. so that may be what you're what we're seeing here um, it's interesting to see such a spike though yeah. like why why the huge spike this is what I would expect to see sort of you know fluctuations in you know machines being off network and then the, and,
0: and less than you know less than a million scan flows per hour here right any one of them and then all of a sudden we're up in nine million
1: right that's really yeah, something that's that's very interesting
0: and that's that I think the the common theme with all the stories is situational awareness. These are all things that people can fix, and if they just know a little bit about security, they can take this into their own hands and fix it. They can patch their machines, they can make sure that they're locking their devices properly, and they can do a little research to understand the full scope of what's necessary in a breach situation so they can be prepared for it later. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.